This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. Today, we're talking with Carmen Imes. Uh, we've got an exciting program today. We're going to be talking about David and Bathsheba, a lot of controversy surrounding this. Stay tuned. It's going to be a great episode. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Hey, it's going to be a great program today. We had a little bit of a rescheduling for those of you who've been following the schedule, but that's okay. Uh, We've been planning on doing this conversation, and we had the opportunity to do it a little bit earlier in the schedule, so we're excited about that. You may notice that I'm in a different space. It's not my, Josh, why aren't you in your laundry room filming in there like you usually do? I'm back in the studio because there's been internet outages at my place, so uh, Wellspring Church has been gracious enough to let me use the old space, so really excited to be back here and working on this project today. Uh, But I want to remind you guys, if you're watching this episode, Episode and you've been blessed by this episode or other episodes we've done and you want to support Remnant Radio, you can do that in the links of the description. You can give a one-time gift on PayPal uh, or you can give a reoccurring gift on Patreon. And if you give on Patreon, as low as five bucks a month, you'll get access to extra content, extended interviews, special interviews, uh, book club. Right now we're going through, our, uh, not R.C. Sproul's, we're going through uh, the screw tape letters uh, with uh, by C.S. Lewis. So we just kind of read uh, a couple of those letters and we discuss them as a uh, cooperative group about, about Anywhere between 20 and 40 of us will jump on there. So uh, it's a small group. You get a lot of uh, really great engagement. So if you want to be part of that, uh, it's pretty easy. Do that in the links of the description. Without further ado, let me introduce you to everybody. That's Michael Roundtree. Uh, Well, the the guy there, I can't really point because everything's swept (laughs) around for me. And then and Dr. Carmen Ives on the other (laughs) side. Uh, And I want to introduce everyone. But first, uh, uh, Michael, uh, what are you excited about? We've got some great shows coming up. What am I excited about? I'm excited, Josh, that you're filming from my former church, Wellspring Church, because can, can you put the image on yourself real quick? Okay, so yeah, there, there he is, guys. Isn't he, isn't he gorgeous? Um, so behind Josh are my former commentaries. I bought these in college before John Calvin's commentaries all went online for free. And it's I weird. Spent like they're all, they're all passion translation. What's up with that, Michael? <laughs> Whatever. Jeez, Louise. So, so you actually have my old commentaries <laughs> back there. Now, if I ever want to reference Calvin commentary, I just go online. But uh, anyway, real excited and interested in this episode. So uh, every now and then I, I hop on the Twitterverse and I saw Dr. Carmen Imes on there. And uh, and she's told us to call her Carmen, so we'll we'll do that from now on. But uh, always, Carmen, love to follow your stuff and uh, loved your book, Bearing God's Name. Encourage you guys to read. Yeah, it's a great wonderful book. book. And uh, I know you're working on some other books too. But uh, the and love for you to tell us about that in just a moment. But the the conversation of David Bathsheba came up, and it seems like it makes its Twitter rounds. Like I don't know, once every two months or so. People get all up in a fuss about did David rape Bathsheba? Was it an abuse of power? Or uh, 
did you know did the bible view this did god view this in a different way just how should we understand was was she being a seductress on the rooftop saying hey david look at me like you know what's going on anyway so uh dr imes okay carmen had some really <laughs> fascinating insights on that so we're going to hear from her on that in a moment before we do carmen uh tell us a little bit about yourself and your ministry uh podcast books all that kind of good stuff sure so thanks for having me on this is fun um, we've done this before, haven't we? But uh, from a different office. So I formerly taught at Prairie College in Three Hills, Alberta. Now I'm joining from Biola University in Southern California, which is a wee bit of a climate change no <laughs> for doubt. me. And um, so I am currently working on a couple of books. I'm writing a prequel to Bearing God's Name entitled Being God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters. And I'm writing a commentary mm. on Exodus for Baker Academic. So those are my two big projects um, that have kind of filled my summer uh, with happy things. And we're, you know, about to have school in a few weeks. So it's it's time for me to start thinking about classes again, too. Yeah. Carmen, are you are you going to ETS this year? I am. Yes, okay. I wouldn't we're, miss it. We're going to ETS. We're, we're going to try to set up a, a, a studio area. So we might have to oh, snag sweet. an interview with you while you're there. So keep, keep that in mind in case you're just thinking about lecturing the entire time. Have one spare hour available for us, and we will we will uh, snag an interview with you. Uh, before we dive into the, the 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 subject matter at question, it might be be worthwhile to just read the passage itself, and then have you kind of walk us through it, and then we'll just kind of give the common pushbacks that are often given in 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 this uh, right. in this reading. So so Michael, if you would uh, pick up for us that passage, and we'll just read it real briefly for everybody. It's like five verses, real small. Okay, so 2 Samuel 11, I'll just, okay, I'll read the first five verses, and we might get into the later stuff about Joab later, we'll see. But uh, here it is, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she went and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Okay, so that's the first five mm -hmm. verses. How do you want to start this conversation, Josh? Uh, no, I, I probably would just say, you know, Carmen, what's, what's the, the initial interpretation that you have of this text? Cause, yeah. uh, this passage often people will take and say, look, uh, David's the King. He sent messengers to her. He exerted his authority and power over her. She wasn't going to say no to the King. Mm -hmm. That was for sure mm -hmm. a death sentence. If you say no to the King, uh, but then others will say, but Bathsheba is not entirely, uh, uh, free of guilt either. It seems as if she's is intentionally positioned herself on this rooftop mm -hmm. and exposed mm -hmm. herself to the king. He, she knew that the king lived so close. She knew that she's mm -hmm. she's in, intentionally uh, enticing and seducing the king. Uh, I want to kind of get your insights on this. Sure. Yeah. So maybe let me say very first off this this chapter and this story is not the heart of my own research. So um, I'm coming to it uh, maybe like many of you, just trying to be a careful reader of scripture. Um, this wasn't my dissertation. Uh, but you I had just a, got into a this viral tweet about it, though. I had a viral, had a viral tweet. tweet so that makes you actually <laughs> so, an expert on it. 
Yes, right. So in these in this these days of social media, if you say something just right and people love it, then suddenly you're everyone's looking to you for answers. So um, I did have a chapel sermon that I gave at Prairie College several years ago, in which I probably spent 20 hours digging into this passage and crafting a message for chapel. So it's not like I was just off the cuff on Twitter. I was drawing from that. But um, uh, what I'll do is share a few things as I prepared for that chapel message uh, that just really jumped out at me. So this was for a series on David, and we were looking at different aspects of David life, David's life, and I got assigned this chapter. So the first thing we notice right off the bat is that David has sent his army out to battle, and he stayed home. The narrator, as the narrator tells this story, it's a very matter-of-fact style of narration. We don't get um, little comments throughout saying, oh, and this was a bad idea, or this was a good idea, or wow, isn't he great, or wasn't that awful. Um, the narrator is just telling us play by play what happened and expecting that we will draw our own conclusions about whether it's a positive thing or a negative thing. And so it's, it's really a brilliantly told story, but the brilliance of that telling runs the risk of us filling in the gaps in the narrative in ways that are not uh, consistent with ancient Near Eastern culture or with the literary design. We all come to the text with our own presuppositions. We've seen pictures maybe like artwork of this scene. And so we that influences what we are looking for, what we think we're seeing. So anyway, um, we're not told that this is a bad thing or a good thing that David is in Jerusalem, but it raises a question mark because he sent he sends everybody else to fight the battle and he stays behind. If we fast forward to the end of the chapter, um, the, the, the battle, or the actually the end of chapter 12, the battle is finally wrapping up. And so the whole David and Bathsheba incident is enveloped in this larger battle story. And Joab is fighting the battle for David. And then he sends a message to him and basically says, now listen, are you going to come do your job or not? Because if I finish this battle, the city's going to be named after me. If you mm. come, then you'll get the proper credit for it. So, so we've been kind of, if we've been suspending our judgment over whether it was good or bad for David to not be there um, at on the front lines, then at the end of the whole incident, we get the sort of the narrators helping us see, Oh, this was actually kind of dishonorable that David's been hanging out and letting his army do the dirty work for him. So um, so that's that's there. One of the things I've heard so many times about this story, as people kind of retell it, is that Bathsheba was on the roof bathing where David could see her. And so I just want us to be very careful to notice that it's David who is on the roof. Bathsheba is not. And this this misunderstanding of the story has been repeated so many times that it's just like part of what we think is going on in the story. Mm -hmm. So and as the and as the logic goes, oh, she's bathing intentionally where David can see her. But it doesn't say that it says David gets up and walks around on the roof. And from there, he sees a woman bathing. Now, there's a couple of things about ancient Near Eastern archaeology or or um, specifically the city of David archaeology that could be helpful here. So one thing I learned in my studies is that there was no indoor plumbing during this time period. So she does not have a bathroom where she would normally be taking a bath. Bathing did not happen indoors with indoor plumbing. Um, more, more probably, people did their bathing outside in public at a public pool 
This is not how we do things, but maybe an analogy is a swimming pool. Like, like we maybe don't, she wasn't even naked. Like maybe she like was. The text never says she's naked. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is one of those things that I think we import if, we, if we're not paying attention to the ancient context, we're liable to import our own imaginations and our own experiences into it. So we all have private bathrooms in our home and we have running, running water. So we would never want to take a bath where someone could see us. And when we take a bath, we're naked. But in ancient times, if people don't have indoor plumbing and they normally bathe at a public pool, then probably they have ways of doing that that are not considered immodest. Hmm. Either hmm. it's not immodest for them to be naked at that pool or they, they are clothed while they're bathing. And this is not, you know, this again is not our experience, but um, if you've lived or traveled to another country, you might have seen something like this. So we lived in the Philippines for several years and in impoverished communities with no indoor plumbing, there's often like an outdoor spigot where men and women alike, young and old, come and, and clean themselves. And they have these like wraparound skirts that are like a tube so they can sort of un, uh, unfasten them from their waist and hold it up like a shower curtain and then grab dippers full of water and get themselves wet and soap up and rinse off and no one is ever seeing anything. Oh, you kind of see that in country movies, like sure. cowboy westerns or whatever. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I don't know. Like, let me just say, like, I'm not an expert in ancient Near Eastern bathing, bathing. practices. But <laughs> what I've like put from what I can put together, it seems very likely to me that she's not doing anything abnormal, that if she was, if they didn't have indoor plumbing and they had dirt or stone floors, they're not going to uh, just normally pour water on themselves inside the house. It's more likely that they would do that out in a courtyard, probably an enclosed courtyard that the neighbors can't see in or down the road at a public pool. And we don't know whether she's at home or whether she's at the public pool. What can David see from his uh, palace, it's very likely that he could see the pool of Siloam from his palace where people bathed, um, even if it's her house that she's in. Um, again, there, there doesn't seem to be anything unseemly about her doing this, about mm -hmm. her bathing. So, Carmen, uh, is so, there anything in the text that would suggest that she was, like you said, you, you said she wasn't on, on the rooftop bathing. Is there any arguments right. that say that she was? Or is this just, like you, you mentioned that this thing has been passed down. Like I remember hearing a lot growing up you know, Paul was knocked off his donkey because he saw this bright light and his name was changed from Saul to Paul, even though right. Saul is just Paul in Greek and there was no donkey yep. in the story. It does say he fell down, but it's like all of these yep. added things were, were said in a sermon and they've just kind of been passed down. I mean, yeah. I was looking and at artwork. Yeah. yeah, I saw this wonderful like this book that we've we've read, we've reviewed. We'll talk about it here in a second. Uh, we had the, the, the speakers come on, you know, and, and talk about their book. And I didn't catch this, but even they said she's on her rooftop bathing. Is there is there like a, a grammatical argument? Is there a, a line of, I don't know, history that says that people bathed on their rooftops? Like, like I, is it I really see... just nomenclature that we've passed this myth around? Yeah, I don't think that there's anything in 2 Samuel 11 that would point to that. There is a famous song, I guess, by Leonard. Is it Cohen or uh. Cohen? Um, that talks you about to the kitchen the chair. Yep. She broke your throne yeah. and she cut your oh, hair. Oh, Michael, please yeah. keep going. Yeah, that's the one. I'll just so, cut straight to you. Uh, I, I don't think I've <laughs> ever heard that song. I mean, the lyrics sound familiar, uh, but that tune, wow. It's 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 off. 
<laughs> I, I don't ahead, typically sing for other people to hear. I sing to God. And, and we, it, thank you, know, you for your service, it. Michael. That, that was really <laughs> <Yeah>. untimely. <laughs> uh, but you know what? It actually is fascinating on a cultural level. So this song mm -hmm. was, I mean, it's an old song. I mean, I think it's probably 30 or 40 years old um, yeah. in its original. So it's fascinating that he portrays her as this seductress aggressor and David mm -hmm. is almost like a victim. Like she yep. just cut your throne out, man. Like you're sorry. She, or she cut your hair. She yep. broke your throne. I mean, yep. sorry about you, man. That just, that just stinks. Yep. I mean, and the song almost makes it seem like David was raped, at least that, that section. Yep. So uh, it's, it's fascinating. And I, I wonder how much, you know, Josh, you mentioned like from the Christian church side, like we import certain things into the story that weren't there, like the whole Saul to Paul sort of thing. I think of uh, the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil where people are always like, yeah, and Eve ate the apple and the you know, Bible never says she ate an apple, but in every cultural image, it's always an apple. So we say it's an apple. Um, I, I'm just wondering from a cultural standpoint, what it says about us that David sins horrifically, and our culture looks at it and says, mm -hmm. Bathsheba sinned horrifically, and poor David. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Carmen, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating how much influence art and music have on what we see when we come to scripture. And so I think we just need to continually interrogate our assumptions as we come to the text and ask a lot of questions and read it closely. And as I was reading it closely in preparation for this chapel message several years ago, I, I just asked, like, I listed all the things I wondered as I was reading the story, like, why is she taking a bath where he can see her? Where is she? Did she have a bathroom inside her house? Um, would it Was it normal to bathe outside? Or, and actually the text does not say that he, she was outside. So it's even possible that she's indoors, but because of his vantage point, he can see through a window. Um, and perhaps there's a sense in which because he's in the palace and he's walking around on the roof, which would have been taller than all the other buildings, um, there really isn't a great way to shield yourself from the, from the eyes of the king. Like he's, he's got this, this scope. So anyway, these are all, um, these are all just fascinatingly uh, stubborn mm -hmm. views of what happened. And I think, Michael, what you said is, is so interesting how, how different periods of time have tended to either vilify Bathsheba or see her as a victim or see her as a heroine or innocent. Like, like each time period has its own sort of cultural mores that play into how we how we see her um, mm. and often reading into the text, what's not there. So we're yeah. told the woman was very beautiful. We're not told she was naked. We're not told she was gazing at him or trying to allure him. And yet often artistic depi depictions will make it seem like that. Hmm. Now, you know, one thing I'm, uh, ahead, Josh, I was just going to make a quick little comment um, in the same section where it talks about how David remained back, which uh, Carmen, you were talking about how yeah. this is not just a side point. It's actually a, major point he was supposed to be yeah. in battle which which itself it speaks of the ease that comes with pride the king just kind of mm -hmm. in his ivory palace uh, ivory tower while everybody else is doing the dirty work um yep but i would 
the fact that it mentions that he was on his roof in that same sentence communicates something else, I think, and that is that David in this elevated location, I mean, why did it even say he was on the roof? It, yeah. it didn't say he was just, it could have just said he was at his palace, but it said he was on the roof, yeah. which speaks of yeah. the state of his heart, which was elevated. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. when we put Bathsheba on the roof, we're actually kind of missing the point that this isn't, we it's are. not about geography. This was the whole reason the roof is even mentioned is it's telling us something about the state of David's heart. But then we we yep. import this extra stuff into the text to to kind of make Bathsheba maybe a little extra complicit. Let me yep. let me ask a question here, Carmen, that I think is, is really important because I think that's a, a really great insight, Michael. When we talked about who is the victimizer, who is the victim, like what's the object, like what's for, for the listener who's watching? I mean, I've seen one yeah. or two comments, not a ton, but like a few people are like, okay, what's the point? Like, you mm-hmm. know, this was a bad thing, whether it was rape or adultery, yep. it was bad. The yep. Bible condemns it, whatever, whatever it was. Why does this really yeah. matter for our discussion? Um, Great question. So I'll, I'll toss you that over to you real quick. Yeah, I think what the reason why this story keeps cycling through the Twitter sphere um, is because in in our current moment in the Me Too movement, Church Two, now I'm hearing Mission Two movement. Um, there's a there's a greater sense of awareness of the power dynamics that play into uh, sexual indiscretion, like. That, that makes something cross the line from consensual to non-consensual. Um, and so from, from, our, from our cultural standpoint, people are rethinking the power dynamics at, as they relate to sexual relationships. And that's making people go back to this story again and say, wait a minute, did Bathsheba even have the option of saying no? Um, have we pinned the blame on both of them when it belongs on David? Um, and so what I'm seeing as I hear the debate sort of cycle through Twitter is there there are two clear camps. And it's it's actually fascinating to see how how consistently these two camps uh, play out. There is the um, the adultery camp, which is trying to argue that this was consensual, that Bathsheba was in on it or that she seduced him. And these are the same people who are casting doubt on any time a victim comes forward to accuse someone of uh, sexual abuse or rape. Um, these are these are the same people who are um, questioning whether that testimony is believable, who are trying to protect those who are in positions of power, who've been accused of sexual indiscretion. They, they're really concerned about false accusations. And um, so in the context of the Southern Baptist Convention stuff that's going on, um, these are people who are casting doubt on the the report that was done by the outside investigators of the executive committee's role in in covering up abuse. Mm. And the same people who are skeptical of that report are the ones who are saying this is not rape. And those who are pushing for investigations in our institutions and who want perpetrators to be held accountable, are those are the people calling this rape. And so th- why does this matter? Well, apparently, our, our, the way we handle this story is a mirror of the way we handle abuse or sexual indiscretion stories in our own day. And so I think it matters because this story keeps getting foisted upon modern situations as a way of either excusing David or 
of condemning him and and excusing a pastor, say, who has had an affair with a church member or or saying, no, that wasn't an affair, that was an abusive situation. And so we need to call this rape. So the way that that plays out in our modern context is I think why we're having this conversation. Let, let me let me toss an idea at you real quick because um, O'Brien says this, and we'll talk about O'Brien here in a second, but, um, well, I say O'Brien, I don't know who wrote this specific chapter. It could have been uh, Brandon uh, J. O'Brien or Rudolph Rich. Or, Sorry, Randolph Richards. Randolph Richards. I Richards. I wrote Rudolph, and I was like, that does not sound right. Randolph Richards. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, it, he suggests that the text always refers to Uriah as the victim, like Uriah. Mm. Uriah is the one who is really victimized, right? So could one infer? Because again, I think that there is certainly cultural. We're all going to want to have our culture. Well, we're all going to try to remove our culture from the reading of the text, but it's very difficult for a lot of people to try and re yeah. remove all of the the context of current political issues, current uh, uh, immoral issues. As you're reading a text, mm -hmm. it's it's affecting you somehow. So, so yeah. if, if I'm going to take this reading uh, or this interpretation for an example, they say, "Hey, let's remove remove our cultural lens." The Bible seems to victimize Uriah, right? Um, mm -hmm. Could that also inform us that somehow? Um, Bathsheba, Bathsheba was consensual consistent. somehow yeah. because because she's not she's not viewed as the victim. Like if you go read the story of Tamar, like that looks like the Bible is calling her the victim in that account. So mm -hmm. so if someone goes, well, this one doesn't look like she's the victim. What would you say to an argument like that? Yeah, really good question, Josh. I would say a couple things. First of all, um, Richards and O'Brien are right. The, the text does mention Uriah over and over and over again. And Bathsheba's name only comes up at the beginning of the story and then after her husband dies. So um, there, there's a couple of things going on here. I think the reason why Uriah is mentioned repeatedly or why she's called the wife of Uriah repeatedly is to, I, what I see the narrator doing is applying this steady pressure on the, on the readers and on David that we know that we're being reminded over and over again, she's off limits. She's off limits. She's off limits. Like mm -hmm. we, don't, we don't know her as Bathsheba. We know her as the wife of Uriah, which underscores that this is not appropriate what David is doing. Mm -hmm. So there's that piece. That's that's one reason why Uriah has a higher profile. I think that uh, Richards and O'Brien are correct that in the framing of the biblical story, Uriah, the, the, the real conflict in the story is not between David and Bathsheba, but between David and Uriah. This does not mean that Bathsheba is not a victim, but it, but it does mean that the victimization of Bathsheba is not the main point of the story. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah. I think part of our problem is that we, we, we're looking for the word rape, and since it doesn't say rape, then we think, well, this must have been consensual. And I, I, want, I want to say that um, the concept of being consensual is a modern concept and that in an ancient marriage or in an ancient affair, um, consensualness is like, that's not how they would define something as adultery between adultery and rape. It's now it's true. I'm footnoting myself here. It's true that there are, are laws in Deuteronomy, I think, where um, if a woman is raped in a field, she's not held responsible. But if it's in a city, she is because she didn't cry out. So I think probably somebody would take that and say, well, look, 
Bathsheba could have cried out. She was in the city after all. And because she doesn't cry out, therefore she's a victim of, she's not a victim of rape. She's complicit. The problem with that is that we have this other layer of dynamic here that, that uh, David is the king. He has sent messengers to retrieve her. His entire like palace guard is at his disposal. If she cries out, who's who's rescuing her? Like, how does this how does this even work? What are her options? So um, I think I think this story complicates those laws from Deuteronomy and shows that they're not the be all end all in in terms of determining fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love what you said about uh, just paying attention to the main point because it it, it is hard to plunge into uh, what feels. <laughs> at least in some areas of this of this narrative, like speculation, um, mm. we don't know. I mean, maybe Beth, I mean, I, in fact, this is a question I have for you. Is it possible yeah. that Bathsheba really wanted this? Okay, maybe maybe we'll go with that okay. because yeah, kind of what got me going question. down that, yeah, what got me going down that path is when you were talking about the mention of Uriah, Uriah, Uriah. I, I love what you said. The main point is about David's sin. And that's why there's not loads of detail about precisely what Bathsheba was wearing and where where she was right. at because right. uh, because it's about Davidson. And by mentioning Uriah, I think it's super relevant too that yeah. Uriah was this chief warrior. He was out to battle where David right. should have been. So, there's, right. so the author is creating this literary contrast of look at yeah. faithful Uriah getting yeah. David's back. And then David's right. not, and so you see this yep. contrast all throughout. So paying attention yep. to, like you said, that main theme. And so I think that does beg the question of how, I mean, can we even know whether Bathsheba was consensual in this? I know it's not consensual. Yeah. So, okay. So, so that the, word is, go ahead. Yeah. Really good question, Michael. Um, I would say that, as I mentioned before, this, this narration, the narration of the story is totally matter of fact business as usual. David did this, then David did this, then David did this. We're not told anything about the interior lives of any of the characters throughout the story. So, and and I don't think that's because the interior lives don't matter. It's because the narrator is trying to draw us in and force us to, to draw our own conclusions and then keep like, so it's like a guess and check system. We think, well, did she want that? And, and we go with that theory for a while. And then until we run into something that, um, contradicts it. So there is a possibility that Bathsheba is favorable towards this idea, but I think there are some clues in the na- in the narrative that work against that thesis. So one okay. is that at the end of chapter 11, um, she, she goes through a period of mourning for her husband. So when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned mm. for him. And at the time, after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. Um, and, and then note that we're told, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. It doesn't say, but the thing that David and Bathsheba had done displeased the Lord. We're hmm. only told by the narrator that David had displeased the Lord. Then in the next chapter, the prophet Nathan comes and rebukes David. There's no rebuke for Bathsheba in his message. And in the story that he tells, he tells this parable to get to sort of draw David in and get him to uh, incriminate himself. And in the parable, the the poor man 
who has just one lamb has this intimate relationship with this lamb. It says he raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, we can't map this exactly over onto um, Uriah and Bathsheba because they're not parent and child, right? But I think the narrative, I think, uh, sorry, I think Nathan very cleverly says it was like a daughter to him because the word daughter in Hebrew is bat, which is the beginning of the name Bathsheba, Mm -hmm. um, daughter of the oath or daughter of seven. So I think the narrator and and the prophet are very subtly cluing us. Playing on words. There's a play on words here. Like it was like a daughter, wink, wink. Um, and, And yet the rich man took that one who was like a daughter. So anyway, back to your original question, Michael, Um, this parable indicates a a very tender and loving relationship between Uriah and his wife. Um, It it suggests Mm -hmm. that. And the fact that she mourns over his death also suggests that. Um, So I think, you know, is it possible like, like maybe, like maybe, but it feels like a really outside chance that Bathsheba is angling for this. So you would just say the text right. doesn't explicitly say it. No, it doesn't say it. And the clues that we do have work in the other direction. Hmm. Well, cause I, even in the parable though, that Nathan uses, it's not like the little you lamb is like, Oh, I'll go over to this oh, man's side. Right. Hop up on like the table the, and offer the, myself the, as a sacrifice. <laughs> right. The yes. lamb is taken by the king. Yeah. And so it seems like God is communicating, not you mutually made a decision to lie together, but rather you took this man's wife. It seems like the parable suggests that it was non-consensual to me. Again, I have have one or two comments that I want to get clarification on, Carmen, just in the comment section Mm -hmm. here. I'm trying to trying to include everyone in here. Uh, it seems as if someone kind of uh, heard you say that people who disagree with your text here are more inclined to uh, disregard accusations of rape because of some of the SBC stuff. I don't, I didn't quite hear you say that. So I want to, I want to just kind of offer, you know, yeah. uh, something and, and let you have you know push back on. I had a friend who didn't care for the review of the SBC's, uh, that Mm -hmm. process, right? And his argumentation was primarily on the basis that this is a, uh, an organization, I think he said that didn't care for the nuclear family, doesn't, uh, affirms LGBTQ stuff. Yeah, yeah, that they are, they are a secular secular organization. organization. Yeah, Yeah, they're a secular organization. So, and and that was his main concern about the investigation. I actually might even think that he he holds to this view that David did rape Bathsheba. I don't think you're saying people that disagree with you, you know, are, are pro-rape or, or dismissive of women. No, so I just want to give you an opportunity no. to kind of speak into that for a second. Yeah. Okay. So, so what I, what I should have said is that I have noticed a correlation. I don't have like statistical evidence that it's sure. always this way. And certainly people are complex and have complex reasons for, for what they think. Um, but what I, what I, what kicked off the Twitter, the last, the latest Twitter sensation over this story were at least two uh, very vocal individuals who were arguing that this was adultery, not rape, and who were at the same time being very vocally uh, dismissive of the investigation in the SEC. And it does seem like 
this is the, the debate sort of lines up in these two camps. So you might be an exception to that. You might think that that David raped Bathsheba, but you uh, are disinclined to accept the SBC report. Like maybe you're an exception, but it does seem like there's a correlation, at least generally speaking, between those two views. Okay, let me let me ask you a question about your your initial post. You made something, and I don't want to get your words out of context, so I'll just kind of tee it yep. up and I'll let you yep. say it the way that you would want to say it. But that that the Ten Commandments committing adultery seems primarily commanded toward men. And again, I want to let you okay. unpack how exactly you said yeah. that, and and why is that important for our interpretation of the story? Okay, good question. So um, the Ten Commandments is my area of expertise. That's what I wrote my dissertation on. And I think most scholars have recognized that they're framed or phrased as if they're addressing the male head of household. So you shall not covet your neighbor's wife is how, you know, how it's phrased. It's not you shall not covet your neighbor's husband or wife. So if it's if it's addressing a male head of household that he can't covet his neighbor's wife, um, that does not mean that it's okay for a woman to covet her neighbor's husband. so the Ten Commandments are addressed to men. men the, the man's job then would be to convey that um, th- those commands to his family so that his family can be faithful in living according to Yah- the covenant with Yahweh. Um, so every member would then have to kind of extrapolate from that. So um, my neighbor doesn't have an ox or a donkey. I've never coveted my neighbor's ox or donkey. <laughs> I might covet their car or their riding lawnmower or whatever, right? Like um, <laughs> we, we, we're in a different situation. We have to do that work of translation to our cultural context. And I, my point is just that ancient Israel had to do the same thing because the commands were addressed to male heads of household. The king was charged to keep the Ten Commandments. And so it's just, I find it interesting that we have David, king of Israel, who's supposed to make a copy of the Torah for himself and keep it beside him and read it every day. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 17. And he is a married man with, at this point, seven wives already, in addition to concubines. And not only does he covet his literal neighbor's wife, but he takes her and has sex with her, which violates Uriah's marriage covenant with Bathsheba. So he's violating his neighbor's marriage covenant. Um, and then he arranges for the murder of his neighbor. So if if anybody has ever broken that command, like David, David here is the, the example par excellence because like this is literally his neighbor's wife. And he knows that from the beginning, as we saw in verse three, when he sends to find out who she is, the word that comes back is, isn't this Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, one of your mighty men, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of your other mighty men. So David has this inner circle of 30 warriors that are the, his elite fighting group. Special forces, bad mamma jammas. Special forces, yes. Yeah. And and this woman is married to one of them and the daughter of another of them. And so not only is she off limits just in a generic sense because every Israelite man is charged to protect his neighbor's marriage and which means his neighbor's wife is off limits. But he's he, these are specifically his own loyal men who are out on the front lines fighting for him right now. And so they are, you know, their conquest is to destroy the Ammonites for, for shaming David. And now, now David is shaming them by co- this conquest over their wife slash daughter. It's, sure. it's really, um, yeah. So some people who read my thread not very carefully and not very charitably, then suggested, oh, so you're saying that women can't commit sexual sin? 
no, I actually didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Women can sin sexually. Um, and now I'm going on the record saying that. Um, the story of Potiphar's wife in Genesis is a very clear example of a woman who is trying to seduce a man. Um, interestingly, there's a power dynamic there as well. She's the one in power and she's trying to seduce um, seduce Joseph who like flees for his life. Anyway, uh, yes, women can sin sexually, but I, I don't think we have enough clear indicators in 2 Samuel 11 to, to, to say definitively that that's what's happening here. Okay, so... It so you do see in the text, there seem to be indicators that there was not consent there, even though that the main point, it's about David's sin and the egregiousness of the sin. That seems to be mm -hmm. sort of a, a corollary of what actually makes it so egregious. So yeah. let's come to the 21st century perspective of people wanting to say, David's a rapist, David's a rapist, David's a rapist. Um, is this just a 21st century thing? Is that what God was trying to say through the text? Is he trying to say David was a rapist and a murderer, and that's part of the egregiousness of his sin? Or are we just taking 21st century labels are we looking for into it? a power yeah. abuse situation yeah. and trying to, and speaking so much uh, kind of yeah. from our own 21st century perspective? Yeah, good question. I, I think we need to be careful about not importing modern categories onto the ancient text. So although I'm comfortable calling this rape, I wouldn't insist on it. Um, in, in, in as much as I don't think the text, I think the text is saying much more than that. This is not just an act of sexual aggression or sexual, um, uh, what's the word I want? Like a sexual assault that's meant to to sort of satisfy some sexual urges, there seems to be something else going on here too. I, and, I, and again, this is where there's gaps in the text. And so how do we fill in those gaps? There, there's more than one way to fill them in. Um, is David, because he stayed behind in the palace, is he feeling uh, like less of a man and he needs a conquest? And so he's got his own wives, but, but he actually needs to sort of have a daring exploit or, or sort of cross the line somehow to feel to feel better about the fact that he's lounging around in the palace in the afternoon when his men are out fighting on the front lines. Um, you know, we're told he gets up. So the NIV says one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Uh, I think Michael, the translation you were reading said it, he got up in the late afternoon. So we we've got a David who was napping probably during the hottest part of the day, which may have been normal in that cultural and a nice uh, siesta graphical sure. yeah siesta so not to say that that was like completely out of line to take a siesta but like given the context we were just told that his men are out on the front lines fighting and they haven't likely been able to have a siesta themselves it just sort of <laughs> underscores his kind of lavish luxury lifestyle he just has the freedom to sort of amble around on the roof with nothing to do no official business to conduct so it, you wonder about his um, his intentions and what's playing into his conquest of this particular woman because she's introduced as the wife and daughter of some of his warriors. Does that does David take that as a challenge? Like, oh, you guys think you're so great out there on the front lines fighting? I'll show you who's really boss. Like, I don't know. It doesn't say that. Um, all we're told is she's she was beautiful, and David sent for her. Um, 
if I was going to preach this text, Carmen, and I was to say something to the effect of, this text does not explicitly declare that David raped Bathsheba, but it may be implicit with some of these clues that the mm-hmm. author, again, maybe, I wouldn't even say for sure is. Um, would mm-hmm. that be would that be even too charitable towards David? Like, that, that seems to be kind of like there may be implicit indicators. It doesn't seem explicit in the text. Would that be fair? So I, I think it would be okay to be cautious about labeling it. But I think um, that the text is not at all cautious about calling this sin. Oh, for sure. And and it's shining all of the spotlight on David. So the narrator, the prophet, and David himself by the end all put all of the blame squarely on David. So I think, and and we we have this sort of sexually charged way of looking at lots of biblical narratives. We see sex where it even isn't. Obviously, sex happens here. She gets pregnant. Um, so, so I'm not dismissing that, but the problem for David is a lot bigger than just a sexual drive. Mm -hmm. I think what we have with David is he is acting in such a way as though the rules do not apply to him and he can do, he can have whatever he wants when he wants it, whether that be his neighbor's wife or whether that be, you know, arranging the battle so that Uriah happens to die. Um, He's he's calling the shots and he we what, what's striking is that there's no sense of guilt with David. This is another thing that I think we import into the text. We think, oh, now David, now that he knows she's pregnant, he's panicked because he realizes he's caught and he try, he's going to try to get himself out of this. But I don't actually see David panicking with a sense of guilt Everybody already knows this has happened. It's not like right. this happened in secret. David sent messengers to get her. Those messengers are members of his palace staff. Uriah sleeps uh-huh. at the gateway of the palace with the palace staff. So so one of the really fascinating things about reading the story is to ask, does, does Uriah know that David was unfaithful, that, that David had his wife? And if Uriah knows, then what is his motivation in not going home? Mm-hmm. And if Uriah doesn't know, then what is his motion motivation? He's trying in to not shame David. Home? That's what it seems like. So to me, it seems plausible that David is like, okay, yeah, I had what I wanted, and now we're going to have this unfortunate situation in which Uriah is going to come back from battle, and his wife's going to be pregnant, and it cannot have been his child. So I, I even imagine David is thinking of himself as the magnanimous ruler who's just going to kind of make this a little easier on everybody so that Uriah doesn't have to stone his wife to death. Um, I, I'm going to let him come back and sleep with his wife so that we can all pretend that this is his baby. And then it, it's like, come participate in this royal fiction. We're going to create a royal fiction. This is going to be the official story. And there may be people who whisper behind closed doors, but the official story will be that this is Uriah's child. If if David's intention was that he just loved Bathsheba so much he wanted to marry her, he could have sent, he didn't need Uriah to come home. He could have just sent a message to the front and had Uriah killed, and then he could have taken her permanently. There doesn't seem to be, from the beginning, an intention to marry Bathsheba. It's just an intention to like, okay, let me, let's smooth this over because this could be a little awkward. 
And mm-hmm. we read into the, this sort of guilt. We're, we're looking for guilt and innocence, <clears throat> even in the headline of the CT article that I ended up writing, um, that, which I didn't pick the title. You know, <laughs> it, the, the title is something like blame, da- blame David, not Bathsheba. So we're, we're all about like, where does blame su- supposed to fall? And I, and I just wonder if, if it's bigger than that in this honor shame context, if it's more about David is trying, David still thinks by the end of chapter 11, he still thinks, you know, he's the big shot and he can do whatever he wants. And look, I'll be nice. I'll bring Uriah back. I'll give him a chance to be with his wife and I'll send a gift with him. And if he accepts my gift and goes home, then we know like, we're still cool. Mm-hmm. And, and yet Uriah refuses to go home and his refusal ends up pointing the finger at David, whether Uriah knows he's doing it or whether the narrator is using his words to do it. Um, it's really clear uh, that Uriah refuses to go home. He says, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. If Uriah knows what's happened, he has just laid down the gauntlet. Like He's, he's also telling just, the king, no, I'm not doing this. He, he is. And it's fascinating because David said, go wash your feet. He uses a euphemism. And Uriah's response shows that he knows this is not about foot washing. And he's like, I can't go home to my wife and have sex with her. Not in the middle of a battle when people's lives are on the line on the front Which he's line. also calling out David, who should be exactly. in a battle. <laughs> right. Who should be in the battle so and who's he's instead like, back He's like, hey, I can't go be with my wife. I know you can, but I can't, you know? Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a heavy accusation. So what if I wanted to create a third way? I'm just trying to, like, get all the interpretive things out there. You've got the, oh, he definitely yeah. raped her. You've got this group over here. He goes, no, it was a consensual act. What if we have like this third option where we go, we're not exactly sure if one of those happens, but what we do know is the text explicitly places the responsibility on David for this action. So we yeah. shouldn't, we shouldn't in our preaching or teaching be making a, um, a, we shouldn't be making Bathsheba the recipient of some kind of sinful act when David is held exclusively responsible. Yeah. So yep. if, if we were I going to create that's... a, a third way that was just more, I'm not certain uh, that it was this or that, but what we do know is this third option. David is responsible. David is held accountable. We shouldn't be placing blame on Bathsheba in a text that doesn't place blame on Bathsheba. Yes, yes. I think that's a really good third way forward Um, because as, as we've discovered even just from this conversation, it's people react strongly when you call it rape or when you call it not rape. Right. There's, there's really strong reactions. Everybody wants a label, right? Everybody wants to label it. And if we can instead say, okay, it is not appropriate to use this story as a, as a admonishment to women to, to not uh, be scantily clad in public like this, like that's not what this story Mm -hmm. is about. That's not what the text. There's a text for that. It's just not this one. This one. Right. And, and I think the, the, the consequence for for shining a spotlight on Bathsheba and her behavior and how it might have egged him on is that you have in your congregation women who have been raped. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's statistically impossible, improbable that there would not be a woman or, or man 
in your congregation who's not been raped. So what you're saying when you're in the pulpit and you're preaching this text and you're putting blame on Bathsheba, you've got people in the pews mm-hmm. who are hearing you blame them for what's happening. Seriously, to them. that's a huge applicational point. I mean, that's massive. You know, it's interesting before this uh this ever erupted and the the whole me too thing. I remember mm-hmm. listening to John Piper when I was uh, when I was like a 24 year old youth pastor and, yep. uh, and he calls it very forcefully. And John, yes. uh, John Piper is a careful exegete, whether you agree with his yes. reform theology or not, he's a very careful exegete and he forcefully calls it rape. So yep. Yep. I'm just saying it, it was out there, but you know, only now are people really get into it. But, I, uh, Carmen, I, I think that's a, a powerful point. And, and it's something that I'm mindful of. Even in watching this show, there are people who are victims of abuse. And yeah. even when this story of David and Bathsheba comes up, maybe because mm-hmm. of ways that it's been taught before, or yeah. maybe just the story itself is almost a trigger. Yeah. And and then I think, too, Carmen, and so for one, I'm, I'm curious, any advice you have on just pastoring that um, from a pulpit uh, in, in that kind of in that perspective is obviously has to be way more mm-hmm. than just a pulpit. Um, but I'm also just thinking about actually, you know what, I'm just going to stop there. Uh, how should we pastor this well from a pulpit? What kinds of things should we say and not say? I think okay. that um, there's a really important move going on in the church today. And I hope, I hope you're on this bandwagon, all of you um, to be more trauma informed in how we talk about things. And and what I mean by that is to recognize that a significant percentage of people in the pews or in your classrooms have been victims of trauma. And that because of that, they are going to hear things through a certain lens and they need your help in, um, in framing things in such a way that they're not going to hear you give blame where it doesn't belong or, um, you know, so to just to give a practical example, very often, as soon as someone reports a, any kind of sexual assault or sexual abuse, the first question that's asked is, well, what were you wearing? And this whole this whole attempt to understand the David mm-hmm. and Bathsheba story is so often overlaid with that question. Well, what was she wearing? As if her nakedness would then remove the guilt from David and make her complicit. I don't care if she was buck naked and I don't care if she was on the roof. David had no right to send for her. She was Mm -hmm. off limits. She is his neighbor's wife. So I feel like we, we often deflect the guilt or the shame from the perpetrator and put it on the victim unnecessarily just by just by the way we ask the questions, I think it comes for, for from a lot of people out of a well-meaning place of like, well, I just want to understand. I just I just want to try to understand how could this happen because David, he's the man after God's own heart, isn't he? And if David's a man after God's own heart, how could he do this? And if I can sort of make sense of it in my mind, how he could do such a thing, then I can make sure I don't do that thing or I don't put myself in that situation mm-hmm. where it could happen to me. Yeah. And I think I think this is backwards. Um, it's backwards looking at David, and it's backwards looking at cases of abuse today, because again, it does not matter what someone's wearing, 
no one has the right to assault another person. Um, so, so that is, and I'm not saying that modesty doesn't matter. I, 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 I'm a pretty conservative person when it comes to clothing and I live in Southern California. So I'm confronted all the time with, um, with things that, that push the line for me. Sure. <laughs> but I, but I would say that we, we need to get away from the need to understand how this happened and get into the mode of saying just unequivocally, this was wrong. Right. David had mm-hmm. no right yeah. to do this. Yeah. If we could just say that full stop, then I think those in the pews would hear what they need to hear from right. the story. Uh, yeah, I I like that. Because, you know, a lot of times I, I do, I feel like in the culture, the Christian culture, the pendulum goes the other way where it's like, you know, you have the crowd saying, hey, it wasn't about what Bathsheba's wearing. Hey, and I'm in agreement with you. And then their next, it's like, you know, I can wear a thong in public if I want. And it's, you know, it ain't my fault. I'm kind of like, Okay, they're like the scriptures do talk about modesty too. It's and so mm-hmm. I don't think Beth, yeah. the Bathsheba story is a text to do that. But one of the things you said was you talked about David as a man after God's own heart. And mm-hmm. when we talk about the abuse conversation, this this becomes really hard because we have a man mm-hmm. after God's own heart who abused somebody. And so mm-hmm. um, I mean, however you want to characterize it, he he yeah. took her. Okay, he took yeah. her for himself. So. There was abuse. There was, uh, you know, egregious sins. So, how are we to understand this? Because what happens mm-hmm. in churches and church leaderships uh, situations is, you know, somebody does something really egregiously abusive, and then it's mm-hmm. like they said they were sorry. Okay, you're back in. Let's you're back in the club. Okay, let's go. Yeah, yeah. And how do how should people process egregious abuses? Understanding that we have to forgive and mm-hmm. reconciliation, the priority of that in the scripture and, and David yeah. repented. I mean, how does that all fit together? That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. It's an important question. Um, I will try to do it justice in a couple minutes, but I, I want to say again, this is not my area of specialty. And there are people out there who would be much better sources for how to be trauma informed, for how to talk well about abuse. Um, I'm, I'm just coming as an Old Testament scholar who spent some time in this text. So I would say, um, I lost my thought. <laughs> um, uh, it's, it, yeah, it was just, yeah, more, yeah, more we, get you back on track on, on those lines yeah. of, Hey, we have these people who have these accusations that are just jumping right yeah. back in leadership. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but here God seems to be throwing okay. David right back yeah. in leadership. He didn't remove mm-hmm. him. How do we right. interpret that? So, okay, but, yeah. Yeah, that's good. And you you were asking about the man after God's own heart and how the, I think how that maps over onto people in positions of spiritual authority is is part mm-hmm. of the tricky business here. Um, so I would say first, this is a probably a, another discussion, but the phrase man after God's own heart does not mean that David has a heart for God. It's an idiom that matches an Akkadian idiom. In a, so this is a sister language of Hebrew that actually means God picked David. It doesn't, it's not talking about David's heart. It's talking about God's heart and God willed in his heart to choose David. Oh, you just told so a God Calvinist chose- that it does not matter. Oh, I wish you would have done that. <laughs> Michael's going to preach it now. Appreciate that. Jeez, I really appreciate okay. that. Okay. I didn't mean to interrupt you. So, Keep going. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So I think that's not to say that David doesn't have a heart for God. It's just that that phrase that we so often use, a man after God's own heart, doesn't mean what we have often said that it means. This is um, God chooses David. 
like he so often does, God chooses a human who is flawed and subject to failing. And I think part of what our problem is with David is that because of 2 Samuel 7, like God God chose David and then says, there's always going to be a king in your line on the throne. And you know, you're going to, your, your family is forever going to sit on the throne. And that's like a set promise. Then we have this like psychological need for David to be a good guy for that to work. And it actually, that isn't the case. David does not have to be a good guy for God's promise to work out for a descendant of David to be on the throne. And, Mm -hmm. and we see of course that Jesus is a descendant of David who then takes the throne. So second Samuel seven is fulfilled in spite of David's failures. So we often come to the Bible looking for heroes, and we want people to put on a pedestal. We want people to emulate. David Mm -hmm. is not that guy. David is flawed. There's all kinds of problems with his rule. But because we come looking for heroes, uh, we we then have this need to to like de-emphasize his faults and explain them away and highlight his strengths. And if we just would recognize David is fallen, he's human. He did some major screw ups um, mm. and 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 God's purposes still get accomplished. Then then I think mm-hmm. that frees us from the need to justify David. Um, and, and I think we could map that same thing over onto our churches today. We have a crazy celebrity problem mm-hmm. in our churches where we are looking for people to put up on a pedestal. You know, who's got the most Twitter followers? Who's got the most YouTube sc- subscribers? Who can say it? Uh, the the sweetest. And I I just think we need to really watch ourselves that we don't keep repeating this pattern of Mm -hmm. elevating leaders as if they can do no wrong, because that's where you have a really unhealthy power dynamic. And people start to disbelieve that that person could do anything wrong. Well, no, he couldn't have, he couldn't have raped her. Like he, I've talked with him before. I've heard him preach before. He's really good. And, and we have this problem because we've been so determined to paint someone as a good guy or a bad guy. Like we have this polarized that we have a very hard time recognizing that a, a person can do good things and bad things. And a person who preaches really well on Sunday morning is not necessarily a, a picture of holiness all week long. They have a talent that God is using and we, and they need to be vigilant like everybody needs to be vigilant. So mm-hmm. I think that's good Protestant I, I, preaching I right helpful. there. No, I do. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. Cause I mean, we all grew up <laughs> hearing that story that, Hey, you view yourself as David. What's your Goliath. Right. So like, it's one of those mm-hmm. archetypal stories that even as early, early childhood, we're taught to view ourselves through the lens of David, but not in the yep. good way. Not that David is weak and small and yep. you know, the, the, the most, the most neglected of Jesse's children, it has appears, mm-hmm. um, and that God chose this like unwanted, neglected child. Um, you know, n- not that we're nobody, and God still chose to use us anyway, because that would have been a good yeah. like reading of the text. But rather, because yeah. David chose not to put on this armor, and David chose to do this thing and love God that yeah. way, he was great yeah. in God's eyes. And if we 
do these things like David did. We can be like David. That's the way that the text is yep. often preached. Little guys can do big things too. Yes, Veggie Tales. Come on, yep. Carmen. Quoting <laughs> the Veggie Tales. Um, uh-huh. but, but Don't you love those, it when you when you're like at the gym and someone has a shirt that says, "I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me," and it has uh, like a bicep and weights. Yes, like, I could lift heavy weights because I kind of just wanted me because Michael to finish off that song that Carmen was singing and just in, in perfect tune. <laughs> Hallelujah. Oh, okay. and where's that <laughs> mute right. button? Where is that? And okay, uh, but hey, Carmen, I'm let me sorry let me finish this thought, Michael. You. Let me finish okay. this thought one second, because because I, I do think that's important that we yeah, we've it. we've so identified with a character that when the character mm-hmm. does something really bad, we're trying mm-hmm. to find ways to justify the character as if he didn't yeah. do that really bad thing because yeah. we self-identify in yeah. the same way. <laughs> Say again. What was she wearing? You know, that's yeah, yeah, that yeah. Part, right. that's that process of trying to justify. Because I couldn't do this. David couldn't do this because I'm identified with David in the same way that I, you know, Mark Driscoll couldn't have done a bad thing because exactly. I loved the way that Mark preached this thing. And I see myself in him here and there. It's because we're self-identifying with that, that, that hero, that archetype, that, that character that, which again, like I'm the guy who wants to praise David for the things he did good and then criticize David for the things he did bad in the same way mm-hmm. that I think Driscoll did some good things. I just think he did mm-hmm. other things really bad. And mm-hmm. and I want to I want to walk that line and say, yes, that was good. Yeah. No, that was bad. Um, sorry, yeah. Michael, you, you wanted to jump in there. So I want to toss it back over to you. <laughs> Are you are you cracking up? Oh, I'm I'm laughing at some comments. No, I really, uh, Carmen. We had like two minutes left in the show, and I asked you like the hardest question of all, <laughs> and I thought you did a phenomenal job. So, uh, Josh, you. I think it's time to for us to close out the show. And I was just gonna gonna pass on uh, closing remarks because it's already we're already about almost ten over. So. Uh, Anyway, I just want to thank you guys for uh, so much. And, and I just want to volley it one more time to Carmen and say, is there anything else that you feel like, man, there's this one thing I wanted to say or anything to tie up mm. uh, just mm. the show today? I, I think we could maybe just end by saying David does respond well to Nathan's rebuke and he owns it and he doesn't try to shift the blame, which is a shining moment for him and a place where he can be an example for us. Um, throughout the story, he's been acting an awful lot like Saul. He's spending all of his resources chasing down a member of his own team, one of his best commanders, um, which is exactly what Saul is doing with David before David's on the throne. And so, we, you know, we love to have, again, bad guy, good guy. And Saul's the bad guy and David's the good guy. But David looks a lot like Saul in this story until he's confronted by the prophet. And then he owns it. And... Mm. Um, that doesn't mean the consequences go away. He's got, he's got like reams of consequences that come in the chapters that follow. But, but I think we can take a hint from this that no matter how badly we've messed up, what God wants from us is to own it and to say, okay, Lord, you're right. I I was wrong. What I did was wrong. And you see how David, um, God, God, actually blesses David and Bathsheba's marriage and their child Solomon becomes the next king, even though there was this um, really unfortunate start to their relationship. 
Hey, Michael, did, did you have some closing thoughts? on it? Carmen, I want to say just thank you so much. I, I think that everything you said was both insightful, uh, biblical. I think it was really interesting conversation. And though there there are some dissents in the comment section, as you would imagine, there would be no a discussion uh, like this. I think uh, overwhelmingly people are are really encouraged uh, by the discussion. Uh, it's, it's something that we all need to grapple with when we're reading a text. Michael, mm-hmm. do you have some closing thoughts? I could close a thought. I, I mean, really, then... I think I would just say on a on a pastoral note, if you have suffered any kind of abuse of power, I'm a pastor. My heart goes out to you. I hate that happened to you, even though I've never even met you. And this is over the Internet that you're watching this or listening mm-hmm. on some podcast. But uh, I just uh, want to encourage you to please just reach out to somebody, find somebody that you can trust and tell mm-hmm. somebody, because as long as that thing stays in the dark, it's... Uh, Healing happens when we come into the light and, and bring it mm-hmm. out. And, uh, and so just if you, I, I just pray for you. I pray that you would find mm-hmm. that person that you can trust and share. Mm-hmm. And telling one person that you can trust uh, is really a first step. So That's uh, I think that, that would be it, Josh. So, yeah. I would just let people know, uh, we you'll notice there's no ads on this video. We uh, turned off monetization uh, because of the heated na- nature of the subject. People don't want to run ads on mm. a conversation like this. We want to try to fi- mm. follow YouTube guidelines to the best of our ability. So uh, if you want to help support the channel, it would be really appreciated on this episode in particular. Uh, there are links in the description. You can do that, a one-time gift on PayPal, or you can be a recurring giver on Patreon. As low as five bucks a month, and you'll get extra content there. Uh, as always, if you're out there, I can't afford five bucks a month, but there's a piece of content that looks really interesting on Patreon, shoot me an email, media at theremnantradio.com. I'll send you that content for free. Uh, we know what it's like. So uh, yeah, that's just the way that we keep the lights on is Patreon. And it seems to seems to help giving somebody uh, a little bit of extra content. So uh, Carmen, again, thanks uh, for coming on. Uh, hopefully we can connect with ETS. I'd love to snag an interview, talk about one of your projects coming up. You guys need to check out Carmen's books. She's done uh, stuff on the Psalms uh, with, with the, in the laments in particular. Uh, mm-hmm. She's done uh, Bearing God's Name. What was the other you you written another book that was like uh was it the i forget which one's which there's like one that's like the reader's version and there's another one that's yeah, like the so real the, academic heavy one yeah so the academic one is bearing yahweh's name at sinai a re-examination of the name command of the decalogue that's Jeez, my dissertation Louise. and then there's the the one that anyone can read which is bearing god's name why sinai still matters university press yeah, if it says Decalogue in the title, you'll know that's the that's the academic one. Uh, yep. That's always the way I I tell the difference between the two. Uh, anyways, <laughs> guys, uh, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Remnant Radio. Make sure to go subscribe to Carmen's channels, Twitters, those kinds of things. She comes out with great content uh, on, on Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter. So go uh, go look for her in those places. Uh, and as always, we'll see you next time, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, from four to five p.m. Central Standard Time. Blessings. want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.